This morning we're going to look at the book of Jonah. No, I'm not dyslexic. We are actually having a break from the book of John. In case you were wondering. Um, we're going to pick up with John again uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, but uh, just the next two weeks, um, God willing, then we're going to just look at the book of Jonah uh, as we go through it. Um, in fact, sorry. There's um, many people that find the book of Jonah a bit fishy. Uh, they seem to uh, find the miracles in the book of Jonah a bit hard to swallow. And uh, in an attempt to make the book a bit more palatable, so-called scholars have tried to suggest different ways that the book can be interpreted. And um, you'll find that there's various books in the Bible that seem to be attacked um, by the so-called experts, uh, and people question their validity. Um, The book Satan hates, particularly Old Testament, Genesis, um, so often we hear, well, it doesn't actually mean that, it means this. And people try and give different explanations. When God said, evening and morning, first day, people say, well, it wasn't actually a day, despite the fact it says evening and morning and all the rest of those things. And people try and put different explanations on it. But it's the book of Genesis that reveals that Jesus was going to come and be our saviour, if you like, the the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus was going to come in human form, the promise uh, in Genesis 3. Um, The book of Jonah reveals the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's something that Jesus himself pointed to. Uh, In fact, in Matthew 12, uh, 39-41, he actually refers to... um, the book of Jonah and the, the, the message in that book as being symbolic of what he was to do on the cross for us and to, to die and rise again. Uh, and the book of Daniel, again, is something that people say, well, you know, Daniel didn't actually write it. One of the reasons they say that is because Daniel is so accurate with regard to prophecy. Um, the, it, Daniel prophesied the, the, the fall of the, the Babylonian kingdom um, uh, the rise of the Medo-Persian kingdom and then Greece and then Rome and exactly as Daniel said so history unfolded and that's led very sceptics to say well because it's so accurate it must have been written after the event um, the problem they have with that is that um, the Old Testament was translated the Septuagint version of the, the scriptures the Greek uh, Old Testament was translated around about 300 BC so even if you put it on that kind of dating um, most of the prophecies still are there, so th- th- there's no getting around it. The, the scripture is incredible and, and uh, stuff. But the, um, these books certainly have been attacked. Um, so what we're going to do, we're going to obviously just, just go through verse by verse, and we're going to see if we can get through this morning the first, uh, first two uh, chapters. Just one little example, just to give you an idea. Actually, I was going to mention this. Um, a Bible uh, seminary, seminary professor was speaking at a Bible college in the States, um, and uh, was talking about the book of Jonah and was saying, well, it's you know, all a kind of a, an allegory. It doesn't actually mean what it says. It means something else. It's designed to illustrate something, despite the fact, obviously, as well, we'll find out. Um, and one of the pupils in the class said, but, but sir, didn't Jesus talk about Jonah as a real person? And the professor turned around and said, yes, he said, but we know a lot more about Jonah than Jesus did. And then realizing what he said, he tried to backtrack a little. And sadly, that's kind of the teaching that um, a lot of people seem to get these days, that end up in uh, uh, authoritative positions. So, um, we're going to go through. The, 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 one of the big uh, 
parts of this is obviously the, the whale, or as we may see, a fish uh, as we go through. Um, and it seems to get the, 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 the central attention. It's what everybody focuses on. When you think of Jonah, you always think of that part of the story. Actually, it's a very small part of the story, um, in, in effect. Um, the, that, uh, that part of it is really just like a, a prop in a much bigger play, um, although it gets all the attention. Um, one of the, the major instances is actually one of the most successful missionary campaigns in all of history, um, when Jonah obviously went to Nineveh, and uh, this, this great big city, this huge city, repented. Uh, and we're going to look at that a lot more next week. Um, and that was all led by a single man. And that just, just made me think of the scripture, that unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. There's a lot of people that try and do things for the Lord, but God just picked one man and used one man. And it's incredible that, that he, he could do it with this man. This man was a, a man who was in rebellion and all sorts of other things, as we'll see. Um, as we go on. Uh, Jonah was actually classed as one of the minor prophets in the Bible. Um, that doesn't mean he was inferior in any way. It's just the fact that the book of Jonah is a smaller book. You have the major prophets, um, and then you have the, the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Um, but actually, the book of Jonah only actually contains about eight verses of prophecy. Sorry, eight words of prophecy, um, which was, uh, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's really the only prophecy um, that Jonah actually gave himself uh, within this book. It's more of a, a kind of a, a story of, of himself, of, of what God did in his life and, and the events surrounding that. So, let's go into the text and have a look at what it says. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Um, now we know from uh, 2 Kings, there's another mention of Jonah, 2 Kings chapter 14 verse 25, talks about Jonah being a prophet, another prophecy he gave. Um, and obviously as we mentioned, Jesus himself um, actually quoted um, from Jonah and talked about Jonah as a real person. Um, so we've got no, no doubt that Jonah was a real, real individual and uh, obviously recorded in the Old Testament as a factual person. Um, and... Um, the first thing is the word of the Lord came to, to sorry, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God does speak to people individually, and God speaks to us. In um, John 15, we read, um, Jesus said, "You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go out and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain." So, although we're looking at Jonah, a lot of the lessons that we're going to learn here are applicable to us. Each one of us this morning, God has called us. It has a plan and a purpose and a mission. And you might think, I'm not very good, I'm not very able, or even I don't want to. Well, that's exactly where Jonah was at. And yet God used him in an incredible way. You see, it's not about our ability. It wasn't about Jonah's ability, the things that we're going to discover. It was about God. It's about the God who calls, not about us. So the word of the Lord come, comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, Nineveh was indeed a great city. It was the capital of Assyria. Um, it was founded, as uh, we're going to see, by Nimrod. Um, uh, Genesis 10 talks about this. In fact, there's a, a slight mistranslation in the, uh, the King James Version, uh, but I'll leave you to, to dig into that one yourself if you want to in Genesis 10. Um, but Nimrod founded Nineveh. Um, it was actually in the, the land after the, the flood. Uh, you had the three sons of Noah that split up and went to different areas. Um, Shem very much went to the area that became Assyria. One of Shem's sons was Asher. Um, which is obviously partly where the name comes from. And, um, but the actual town of, or the city of Nineveh was a huge city. Um, they reckon that uh, it was about 27, 30 miles in diameter, a uh, very, very big place. 
Um, there was uh, capacity for about 600,000 adults, and we know from, from the Texas we're going to see there's about 120,000 children besides that. Um, they, Assyrian people, if you, the text there says that uh, the cry come against God, for their wickedness has come up before me. And they, they were a very cruel people. Um, they conquered lots of the surrounding uh, nations and um, destroyed the cities and things. Um, and although it's a, a family service, I can't go into all the, the details of what they did, but just to give you some idea, when they got captives, they used to actually put fish hooks through their noses and drag them along back captive. Uh, if they didn't do that, they used to sew them together uh, and lead them along in a big kind of train of people. Uh, not very pleasant, you'll agree. Um, for certain crimes, they would chop off people's noses. So if you found somebody walking around with no nose, you know they'd done something wrong. Um, um, also, the people they took captive, um, the Assyrians were known, and history has got various records of this, um, they were known to remove the tongues and eyes. This is quite horrible stuff. Um, and uh, I could go on. Some of, the, some of the things were really quite gruesome as I was, I was uh, studying some of these things this week. Um, but that's the kind of people they were. They were just out to conquer and become as great and big and powerful as they could. Um, and it's to this people that God says to Jonah, I want you to go and preach to them. The, um, just to give you some idea of where we're actually at, uh, that is Nineveh there. You can just see on the red dot. Um, Israel is down this side. Uh, Jerusalem and Samaria um, up there, and uh, obviously this is where Jonah would have been. Uh, and this is a Mediterranean Sea with Greece up there, and going through what we call Turkey today. Uh, and then Babylon was down here. That was the other major um, player back in the uh, the old world empires was Babylon and Assyria, very much vying for power during this time. So geographically, that's the kind of area we're looking at. Um, just to give you some idea, this is kind of a little bit of what the uh, the city may have looked like a little bit. Um, they say that um, there was um, 15,000 towers, sorry, 1,500, 1,500 towers around the city, uh, around the walls. Uh, the walls themselves were supposed to be about 100 feet high. The towers are about 200 feet high, although that isn't quite, the, this isn't a picture of Nineveh, actually. By the way, this is just a picture I got that gives you some idea of what it may have looked like. And uh, uh, absolutely huge city, really, really big fortress type place. And uh, apparently the walls are wide enough, you can have uh, chariot races three abreast around the walls of the city. So this is a big, big place. Um, Nineveh was actually um, found by archaeologists. It was was another one of those things that people said, oh, the Bible's not true because Nineveh doesn't exist. Because up until about 1850, um, they, they hadn't found Nineveh. Nineveh had been destroyed. Uh, it was all prophesied by the prophet Nahum uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in incredible detail, actually. Uh, the prophet Nahum prophesied how it was going to be destroyed, uh, and it was exactly as it said. Um, and really, all of the, uh, the city is, is just, you just see this kind of like little mound at the back there, uh, and that is actually what's really left of the city. They have tried to, to excavate and build bits. That's a, a little part of the excavations there, although it's not particularly clear. There's part of an old kind of statue type thing there, a little bit that's left. Um, part of the old wall going up around there. Huge place, very, very big place. And they are starting, this is in, in what we call Iraq today, modern day Iraq. And they're trying to uh, excavate and go through it. Um, and as I say, there's a lot of the, the so called scholars that said it was just a mythological city, it didn't really exist, something like Atlantis or you know, some of these things, until they found it. And again, people had to backtrack and say, oh, well, maybe the Bible is right. See, if you give people enough time, eventually they catch up and realize that the Bible's right all along. So uh, there you go. Uh, It was actually um, destroyed in about 607 BC, uh, if you want to make a note of that for whatever purpose. 
Um, but that's when it was destroyed. And it, was, it was about 100 years after Jonah preached to it that it was actually destroyed. So Jonah went with his message. And the people at the time repented, but then they reverted to their old ways and then God brought judgment on them. Okay, so um, moving on then, uh, verse 3. But Jonah rose up and fled unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship uh, going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it and to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish is an interesting place in Scripture. We don't know exactly where it is, um, but one of the, the most probable locations was Britain. Tarshish, we know from Scripture, was a great source of tin. And uh, Britain, uh, as the name suggests, this the tin part of the Britain. Um, there was uh, a lot of tin. This country used to produce a lot of tin, particularly down in Cornwall. Uh, we're going down to Cornwall in a, a few weeks' time. And uh, there's a lot of old tin mines down there. Uh, we also know it was beyond the, the, the entrance to the Mediterranean. You've got Gibraltar uh, there and the Gibraltar Strait, and uh, kind of the entrance into the Mediterranean. And um, we know it was beyond that from some of the Greek writers that, that talked about this place, Tarshish. Uh, and it was also about a three-year journey there and back, so it was a long distance away. And Jonah wants to get as far away from God as he possibly can. Now, Jonah's intention was to go away from God. Now, it's a kind of a foolish thing because if you try to go in the opposite direction of God, you'll find that actually God is in that direction. You go, God is everywhere, isn't he? So you can't actually run away from God. Uh, Psalm 139 talks about that. You know, um, wherever we go, the Lord is there. We cannot escape God's presence. Um, that's actually what makes um, what we call hell when we talk eternal, uh, the eternal lake of fire. That's what makes it such a horrible place because that is the one place God's presence will not be, and that's what makes it so horrible. So Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish, went down. Uh, you'll find this, this going down bit. This Jonah starts here, and it's just a big downward spiral, and he just goes down and down and down. And he goes down to Joppa and finds his ship, and he pays the fare. He uh, paid for more than he was expecting, as you'll see. Um, and obviously, the intention was to escape from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind. Uh, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea. This is no ordinary wind. This is something that God had done. Uh, you remember, again, the, the situation with the disciples on the Lake of Galilee. Uh, there's another big wind. And it was, you know, the, the disciples were fishermen. They used to spend their lives working on that lake. And yet this wind that they experienced was something that was unusual. Uh, and exactly the same thing here. These were trained mariners. They, they, they knew their job. They're about to travel this long distance on this big boat to Tarshish. They're expecting heavy seas. But this, this, this wind, this tempest, is something unusual. And it says in verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid and cried, Every man unto his God. That was the way it was back then. Uh, people had their own gods. It was just very much part of the culture. You, everybody had their own God. Uh, and um, every man cried unto his God um, and uh, cast forth the wares that were in the, ship in, uh, were in the ship into the sea. You see, they're throwing the cargo overboard at this point. They're really worried. They're really fearful for their lives. Uh, so they start throwing the cargo overboard to try and make the ship lighter. But Jonah, another, was gone down into the sides of the ship. So Jonah starts going down to Joppa. Now he goes down into the, the bottom of the ship in the hull there and just trying to find a little place to have a nap. And he's fast asleep. And then uh, verse 6. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What means thou, O sleeper? Now that's probably kind of polite King James. I imagine if you got the the original raw translation, it possibly would have been a little bit, uh, or sounded a little bit more sterner than that. Um, but the ship owner says to him, "You know, 
What are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be, if it so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. You see, they're all crying on their gods, and they say to Jonah, well, look, you cry on your God. Let's just try everything. And Isn't that true of people in, in the world today? People just try everything. You know, they, they, they don't say, well, you know, maybe there really is a God, and we'll try and find out about that God. They, they just take whatever they put their trust in, or whatever they base these things upon. And when things go wrong, they, they cry out to their God who doesn't hear them. Uh, accounts in the Old Testament of people that called out to God, or to, to their God, and nothing happened. The, the most famous one, the prophets of um, Baal um, on uh, Mount Carmel with Elijah. Uh, they cried out from morning till noon, and they started cutting themselves and doing all sorts of things. And you know, Elijah starts taunting them. Wonderful story. People do cry out to all sorts of things, and these people were doing the same. And they say to Jonah, "Look, you cry to your God. You know, let's just just try everything. We're, we're going to drown." Verse seven. And they said, everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is, is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. You know, I just kind of get this picture that, that Jonah has kind of run away from God. He's now in the, the hull of the ship. And he's, you know, all of a sudden, you get, I just kind of get this kind of picture in my head of Jonah kind of flicking his light on, just have a look, see what's around. And there's God just sitting there going, yeah, all right. You know, he's trying to run away from God and God's still there. And then they get Jonah up and they ask him to pray and, and they start to, you know, they suggest they cast lots. And you know what Jonah's thinking? He's, this is going to be me, isn't it? He's this, you know, he knows what's going to happen. And a lot falls on Jonah. He's expecting this and it does happen. You can't run away from God. You can try, uh, but you just can't do it. Um, and they said unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is come upon us? What is thy occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? What, are, and what, what people are there? They really want to know who this guy is. They, the lots fall on Jonah. Who is this guy? What has he done wrong? Why has this come upon them? Really, what they're saying is, yeah, get us out of this mess. It's your fault. Tell us what, why you've done this. What, what's caused the problem? <coughs> All these questions. And this is not the answer they were hoping to hear, I'm sure. Because he says to them, I'm Hebrew, and I fear the God of heaven. Probably not all that much, you, you deduce from the fact that he's running away from him. That must have been terrifying to the, these sailors, because they would have known of the stories of uh, the Egyptians that drowned in the Red Sea, and of the conquest of Canaan when Joshua went in, and, and even before that, Moses that defeated these great giant kings and their, their nations, um, and all that God had done for the Hebrew people. And they find out that this guy is a Hebrew, and he serves this God. And now they're in this predicament. And it says, the men were exceedingly afraid. You see, they were afraid at the tempest earlier on. Now they're exceedingly afraid. And they said unto him, why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Jonah explained to them the situation. that He'd been asked to go to Nineveh. Now, at this point, why was it that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Well, first class, you may think it's because they were really scary people and he didn't want to go. But Jonah was a prophet. He was used to dealing in situations where saying things that maybe were not popular. That wasn't the reason. The reason was that he was a very patriotic Jew. And the last thing he wanted was to see God forgive Israel's enemies. Because he knew that Israel were on the list of the people that Assyria wanted to conquer. And true enough, we find out later in Scripture, uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, I had the date here somewhere. Um, but um, the, the Assyrian army moved against Israel and they took Israel capt- in, into captivity. 
Jonah knew that this was going to happen. He knew that this has also you know, been prophesied that God was going to bring judgment. Uh, and he saw Assyria as being the mechanism that God was going to use. The last thing he wanted to do was see his enemy, his nation's enemy, preserved. So it wasn't the fact that he was scared of going. It was the fact that he did not want God to forgive them. He wanted to see them destroyed. And there's a lesson in that for us that we shouldn't assume we know all about the situation. You see, Jonah was just looking at his particular thing and not seeing the bigger plan of God in all of this. Um, and he was fearful for his own country people. Um, and again, we, we do so often, we try and you know, protect our own end because we don't understand what God is doing. Verse 11. So these mariners, they said to him, what shall we do unto you? you know, what, what, help us, you know, what, that the sea may be calm unto us, for the sea... Uh, roared and was tempestuous. This this waves beyond what we could think of. And uh, they're saying to him, help, what do we do? And he said to them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea. Now, I just thought this was really interesting. You see, by this time, I would have probably said, all right, just take me back to shore and I'm going to go to Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't do that. Jonah says, well, throw me into the sea. You see, at this point, he's still determined, I am not going to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go and preach to these people. He doesn't want them to repent. And he says, throw me into the sea. Now, again, that's interesting, because he doesn't want to commit suicide. He's not going to take his own life. Okay? He does fear God, but he's not going to do this thing that God has asked of him. And he says, that if you do that, so the sea shall be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Now, there's a, another lesson here for us, because... When we get caught up in rebellion against God, it almost certainly will affect other people. And sometimes we think that we've got a a secret sin that nobody else knows about, but it affects others, because very often it will affect us. It makes us miserable or grumpy or irritable or whatever else. Um, I've said before, often Joy knows that if I'm miserable or grumpy or irritable, it's probably because I've not been spending the time with the Lord that I should have been. I've been running away, doing whatever else. Maybe things that seemed important to me but I've not been spending the time with the Lord that I should have been. And it does, I know, and Joy will vouch for this, many a time it's had, it does have an effect on me. I, I just, part of the old life starts creeping back in. and I just, I, I'm sure I would be a really horrible, well, I, I say I'm sure, I know I would be a horrible person without the Lord in my life. And what God does in us and the way he changes us is just incredible. And I, I do believe as well, sometimes God allows us glimpses of what we would be like without him. And if you've ever had a glimpse of that, it's scary, it's really horrible. The, the kind of person that we could be. Uh, I remember Oswald Chambers was, was once said about the fact that um, you, know, you look at the worst possible sinner that you could imagine, and that capacity to sin is exactly the same in each one of us. That is why we need a saviour. That is why we need a new life in us. Our sin will affect other people. Jonah's sin was affecting these people. They were, in a sense, innocent bystanders in this. And yet... The grace of God, that in this, God knew that Jonah was going to run away from him. But in doing this, God engineered to save these sailors. It's incredible. Because the next thing that happens, nevertheless, the men rode hard. You see, they tried to do their bit. They didn't want to throw Jonah in. Um, they rode hard to bring it to land, but they could not, for the sea roared and was tempestuous against them. You know, so often we try to do things in our own strength. We try to do what we think is right, and we can't. And when we come to the end of our trying, the end of our effort, God is there saying, okay, have you given up? Now let me do it. And so often we try and get things right. We try and go through, you know, Lord, I'm not going to sin today, and you, you're determined not to do it, and you find you fall down. 
And eventually when you realise that it's about God's grace. You see, we're saved by grace. You had no part in your salvation other than just accepting. And we're sanctified, okay? Made holy, made righteous, however you want to term that. We're sanctified by God's grace. Jesus said that exactly, exactly that to, to, to Paul. Uh, we read about it in the end of the book of Acts. Um, those that are sanctified by me, by Jesus said. Verse 14, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us... You see, notice now that they're crying to the Lord. They've given up on crying to these other gods that they once served and they were crying out to earlier on. They are now crying out to the Lord. And they say, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, has done as it pleased thee. They're saying, please, Lord, if we throw him overboard, don't blame us for it because this is what you've asked us to do or this is what we, the position we've been put in. They're fearful. They're starting to fear God. Verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. And the sea ceased from her raging. Get this. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. You see, when the boat was being tossed around to start with, they were afraid. When the wind and the waves stop and all of a sudden, it's like, you're just looking around. It's like, did that just happen? You can just imagine it on the boat for them. And now they're really, really afraid of the Lord. They they feared the Lord exceedingly. They had this real um, awe of this God. Not awe as in boat awe. (laughs) They were in awe of the Lord that had done this. And they they realized. And and they offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. You see, even in Jonah's disobedience, God was working to bring these people to him. And I just find that so so much of a comfort because the number of times that you you feel that you're not where you should be and you you really feel the the Holy Spirit tugging at you. And and yet God seems to use you sometimes in those positions as much as he uses you when you're close to him. Now that's not a a suggestion to say, don't worry, God will use you anyway. Um, because we know that for our own lives, as we're going to see, it's much better if we're walking with the Lord. That's what God wants for us. But God will still work. God is still an amazing God. And God cared about even these fishermen and brought them into this, this position where they offered a sacrifice and made vows. Um, and coming up to the end of chapter 1 now, we read, um, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, fish, whale, whale, fish. I think it's fish. The reason I think it's a fish is because it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So you can put whale if you want, but I think fish. Um, You will find in the King James, when Jesus refers to this situation in Matthew 12, Jesus actually refers to the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. And uses it to explain about um, Jesus being in the the tomb. in the heart of the earth, as he talks about. Um, and Jesus does use the term whale, but that's actually a, a bad translation in the King James. The, the word um, is actually, uh, final word is, um, uh, katos, there you go, so my Greek's not all that hot. The, the, word, the Greek word is katos, which basically means a big fish, great fish, sea monster, large thing. Jonah really wasn't that bothered anyway. I mean, if you're thrown overboard and you're swallowed by something big, you're not really too bothered about what it is. Um, we're going to just look at a couple of aspects of this verse. Um, just to, to give you an idea, uh, that's actually a whale, um, but 
at the bottom, you probably got that bit. Um, that's a man. You probably agree that a man could fit inside something that large. Okay, so just from a logistics point of view, yes, this is possible. Uh, and I would just say at this point as well, it really doesn't matter because it's God that prepared the fish. Okay, God could have done anything. God could have prepared just a one-off. Could have chosen a mackerel and said, "I'm going to make a really big mackerel just to follow, swallow Jonah." It doesn't matter because God did it. It's a miracle. Okay, it's in the same way people try and explain the, the Star of Bethlehem. You know that it, oh, it was a comet or it was this or it was that. You know, some of those things. The arguments are really irrelevant because God did it. Um, and so, but just just to show you that that it is possible for people the people that actually doubt this. There's been various reports of people that have been. Uh, Swallowed by whales. In February 1891, this chap, James Bartley, uh, was on a boat called the Star of the East, somewhere off the Falkland Islands. And uh, there was a couple of boats, and uh, one of the boats got um, knocked over by this whale, and the people went in the thing, uh, into the, the water. Uh, one of the guys they never found, um, but eventually they caught the other boat, managed to catch um, the whale, and got it up, and they're cutting it up. And they found inside the whale, they saw something moving, and it turned out to be James Bartley. He was unconscious by this time, completely bleached white, all his eyebrows and hair follicles all dissolved by the, the gastric juices uh, of this creature. Um, and um, he was unconscious, apparently it took him a few weeks to recover, uh, eventually he resumed duties, but his skin remained bleached. Um, that was uh, reported in uh, the uh, Great Yarmouth Journal, I think it was as well, uh, and also New York Times. Now, there is a... a site on the internet that was just talking about this and somebody had gone in to try and disprove this account and they were saying that it's not true uh, and they trying to get various people to say that it didn't actually happen. I don't know whether it did or it didn't, it doesn't really matter as I said, um, but that is, that is still, most people seem to accept that that was a factual account and there were certainly newspaper reports at the time uh, about it. But one that is definitely uh, no, no contention about, uh, there was an English sailor that fell overboard and was swallowed by a big fish. Okay? Uh, a day or two later, the fish was seen floating on top of the surface of the water, was taken ashore. Uh, they opened it up and they found inside the shipmate. Again, exactly the same thing. Uh, he'd been very much bleached white by the, um, um, the, the gastric juices of this, this fish. Um, and it uh, was recorded um, by uh, a guy called Dr. Rimmer, Dr. Harry Rimmer, who actually interviewed the chap that this had happened to. Um, uh, so a little bit more. And this guy, Harry Rimmer, has written a book called The Harmony of Science and the Scripture, just to show that, again, that these things are possible. But don't get too caught up with those things, because at the end of the day, the fact is that it's God that prepared a fish. It's possible, but you know, it doesn't matter. That's the first part of this verse. And the second part of this verse is the three days and three nights thing. Now, and Jesus used this specifically when he was talking in Matthew 12 to say, you know, as Jonah was in the belly of the, the, the whale, the fish, three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now, we've got a, a problem. Um, this is the scripture I just mentioned there. Um, verse 40, uh, in fact, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, to the Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, uh, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now we have a problem. Because if we look at the, the standard um, crucifixion week of Jesus as he's portrayed, we have Good Friday where Jesus was supposed to be crucified. Now if you do the maths on that, now understand the Jewish day starts in the evening. If you do the maths on that, you find out that Jesus was only, if Jesus was crucified on Friday, there's only two days and two nights. Now, there's a problem. Either the scripture's wrong or our understanding's wrong. I would suggest it's our understanding. In Exodus 12, verse 3 to 6, um, talking about the Passover um, that was being established at that time uh, when the Israelites were in Egypt, 
Um, verse 3 says, Speak unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, okay? according to house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And verse 5, uh, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, you should take, uh, take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And verse 6 says, And you should keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it in the evening. Or a better rendition of that from the Hebrew would be between the evenings. Okay? Now that's just part of the Passover thing. But we know that the things in the Old Testament are brought to life in the New. And so many of these things were models of what was yet to come. Now, we know from the, the work of a guy called uh, Dr. Robert Anderson. I've actually got the book of his called uh, The Coming Prince. It's a fantastic book. It was written over 100 years ago. But he talks very much about the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Now, from that prophecy, um, from the command given by uh, King Artaxerxes Longimanus um, in 445 BC on the, the first uh, of Nisan, the Jewish month of Nisan, which will be around about our April time, um, we know, as we've talked about before, 173,880 days until Messiah the Prince. And if you do the maths working on that, and again, uh, there was with a Jewish, with a prophetic year, there's 360 days to the month, not 365. There's lots of reasons for that. Haven't got time this morning, unfortunately. Um, but if you do the maths, that comes out exactly on the 10th of Nisan, AD 32. Exactly. Which was the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. It was the day, the only time in his ministry that he presented himself to Israel as their Messiah. If you remember, throughout his ministry, Jesus said, you know, uh, you know who do you say I am? And uh, you know, they said, you know, the Lord, the Christ. And, and he said, you know, keep it quiet, don't tell anybody. People, when Jesus did miracles, they said, oh, you're, you're the Lord, you're the Christ. And they said, you know, shh, keep it quiet. All through his ministry, up until Palm Sunday, as we call it, uh, the 10th uh, of Nisan, AD 32, when Jesus announced himself, and he arranged the event, and he rode in on the, the donkeys, we uh, know from the story in Scripture. So that's the beginning of the week. You follow the dates through from, from that, that, um, that date, and we, we get to the, uh, the 14th, which actually for us begins on, on the, the Wednesday evening. Um, the, the 14th will actually begin what we would call the 13th. Actually, you've heard about the superstition of Friday the 13th type of thing. That was uh, because of the Egyptians. You see, on the actual Passover back in uh, Egypt, it was the, four, the 14th was when the Passover began, but for the Egyptians, as far as Oka said, it was still the 13th. That's where that idea of the superstitious idea comes from. So, we have the 14th, uh, begins in the evening, and Jesus, we know from Scripture, spent the Last Supper with his disciples as a Jew, having the, the, the Passover celebration on the 14th, as the scripture said. But to fit the model, it also works that Jesus then also was crucified also on the 14th. Now, by our calendar, this wouldn't work, but because the Jewish day starts in the evening, this is the way it works. Um, and this is obviously the Feast of Passover. Then we get the 15th, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Starts on the evening of the Thursday, goes into the Friday. The 16th, which would be the Sabbath, starts on the, the evening and goes on um, into there, into the Saturday. And then the 17th would begin in the evening. And then we read in Scripture, it was early in the morning on the first day of the week. Okay? Um, Mark also points out, Mark 16, that when the Sabbaths had passed. Now, the reason of Sabbath, there was the, the, what we would call the Saturday Sabbath, the Shabbat for the Jews, but there was also this Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was also considered a Sabbath to the Jews. So when the Sabbaths had passed, all right, uh, the 17th, the day of the resurrection, was the same day that the ark also rested on Mount Ararat. 
Okay, it was on the 17th day of the 7th month. That's recorded in Genesis 8.4. You see, all these details are recorded in Scripture. And sometimes we read over them thinking, oh, it's not all that important or I don't really understand it. But later on you'll find that everything fits together incredibly. So I just wanted to share that with you because from Scripture, you, you can work it all out. And I, I spent ages once going through and drawing this, this map and everything, fitting everything in this, this, this week. Um, but Jesus was actually crucified on the 14th, on the Passover, because he was the, the Lamb of God. Yeah, sacrifice for us. Um, so I just want to share that with you as well. So when we actually get back to uh, where's the scripture, uh, so as it says, uh, Jesus said, that the, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, um, um, there, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it's exactly as scripture said, it was three days, three nights. Okay. Chapter 2. And we are very nearly there. Um, chapter 2 is not all that long because uh, this is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the, the fish's belly and said, in fact, just to, uh, he was there three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed. So he's rather stubborn. He's in this, this kind of horrible, slimy thing. And apparently uh, all these big kind of fish eat all sorts of things, you know, big squid and all sorts. You just imagine things floating around Jonah. Uh, and, you know, it would be a horrible environment. And, you know, they say it's the humidity that kills you. And the, the humidity inside this thing would have been just the smell. And oh. In fact, um, they, they do know that, that for whales particularly, when whales are about to die, they beach themselves. Uh, and often they, they vomit up things. Uh, whatever's left. Um, and because it is such an offensive smell, scientists thought, I know, we can do something with this, and they made perfume from it. It's actually because one of the, the chemicals is such an uh, incredible chemical that, that prolongs its smell for such a long time, they use it in perfume. So, you know, say to your wife, you smell like a whale, dear. Then, you know, it's, it's a compliment, really. I'd never say that. Of course, I'm just, you know, if you want... Anyway, moving on with the text. And uh, so Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the, be- the fish's belly. He said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Uh, Out of the belly of hell I cried. That's interesting. We'll look at that in a moment. And thou heard my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Jonah says, very interestingly there, out of the belly of hell. Now, I'll just share it with you because some scholars hold this view, and certainly it's something that is not contrary to what the text says. Some people actually believe that Jonah died. Because it would fit the model of the fact that Jesus died and was brought back to life. Whether that's the case or not, we don't know. But Jonas clearly says, out of the belly of hell. Now, the, the word he uses for hell is this Greek word, sheol. Um, uh, just very, very quickly, um, from scripture, before the resurrection, there was this place, we believe, geocentric, in the center of the earth somewhere. Lots of scriptures talk about this. We haven't got time to go into all the scriptures. Um, but there was this, this impassable gulf. We know that from the... A story in the New Testament of um, Lazarus and the rich man. Um, but we had the, the good part. Any of the, the, the believers in the Old Testament, any of the righteous people, went to Abraham's bosom, and the, any of the unbelievers went to this place of torment in Hades. And this is where Jonah, uh, from his suggestion, is saying that he went, which would suggest that he did die. So if people say, well, you know, I don't believe a man could survive in the belly of a whale for all that time, it's not a problem, because he probably died anyway. It doesn't matter, these things that people try and throw at us. Um, the, uh, the bottomless pit from scripture, uh, P- Peter talks about that in First Peter, a place called Tartarus, is actually, um, the Greeks say it's the, the lowest possible place. Uh, it's uh, also known as the Abuso. Um, more of that in uh, our Revelation studies as we get there. So, just uh, tying up chapter 2 then. Then I said, 
Jonah speaking, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Jonah would have known the scriptures. Jonah, in fact, in this part, quotes a lot of Psalms. Uh, he knew scriptures. Um, the waters compass me about, even to the soul, and the depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around my head. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? I went down to the bottom. You see, he's gone down again. I went down to the bottoms of the mountain. Um, the earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Corruption is another word that would suggest that he had actually died. Um, verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. Good time to remember the Lord when we get to that point. It's probably better if we can remember the Lord before we get to this point. But Jonah remembers the Lord. And my prayer came unto thee, into thy holy temple. This, this reference to the temple very much harkens back to, to when Solomon built the temple. And he said that, you know, he prayed that, Lord, if people look towards this place, um, then, rem- then hear their prayers. And talks a lot about that in Chronicles, Second uh, Chronicles. And Jonah then says, uh, sorry, verse 8, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. You know, it's possible for us to forsake mercy by things that we choose to get into. We could end up forsaking mercy. Verse 9 says, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Sorry, pay that that I have vowed. And then this incredible, again a quote from Psalms, Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah realized it wasn't about him, it was about God. God had engineered this, this whole thing to bring him to this point. And in verse 10, And the Lord spoke unto the fish, and it was far more obedient than Jonah was. It's the first time he does it. He's, he's, you know. The Lord spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. It's incredible. You see, Jonah had had this experience of rebelling against the Lord. And, and this is the way it is. If we choose to rebel against the Lord, we start going down. Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down to the bottom of the ship. He went down into the belly of the great fish down to the bottom of the mountains, and down into hell. Okay, But then, he lifted up his voice in prayer, he lifted up his eyes towards the temple, he lifted his voice in thanksgiving, God brought him up from corruption, God brought him up out of the fish, and as we'll see next week, God brought him up to Nineveh as well. When we're obedient, it's an upward thing. When we're disobedient, it's a downward thing. And we get a choice. You see, really... Who was hurt in all of this? Only Jonah. In Jonah's disobedience, the only one that suffered was himself, really. You see, as a result of it, although the the sailors went through a bit of a rough time, they ended up getting saved. And I'm sure they'd look back on the event and been amazed at what God had done and that God had used this situation. See, the only person that suffered was Jonah. And if we choose to continue in disobedience, we are the ones that will suffer. It doesn't affect God's plans. God gets what he wants. We, We don't dictate to God how he's going to do things. Next week, we're going to carry on. Uh, we're going to look a little bit more about Jonah as a type or model of Christ. We've seen a little bit this morning, but we'll look a bit more of that. We're going to look at uh, Jonah, obviously, gets to Nineveh, smelling a bit, obviously. Incidentally, I'll, I'll mention it now, but uh, it's very interesting that, obviously, you know, from what we understand, he's very likely going to be bleached white and, you know, a bit of a smelly chap by this time. Anyone know who Nineveh, people in Nineveh worshipped? A guy called Sargon, a god called Sargon, the fish god. Maybe that's why the people in Nineveh went, 
wow, when he walked through the gates. And chances are they'd heard the story, because the, the sailors would have got back to land, they'd have, they'd have returned, they'd had no cargo, so they'd have gone back to the port. And chances are the story would have spread pretty quickly. They may have even known that he was coming. And we're going to look next week about the biggest revival in history. And we look at the fact that Jonah gets grumpy all over again. Isn't it just like us? You know, God does incredible things in our life. We rebel and God sorts us out and we're back with God. And it's all wonderful and we praise him and lift our voices in worship to him. And the same goes wrong, we get all grumpy all over again. This is just, just like we are. It's kind of comforting, really, that um, God has time for people like Jonah. And probably one of the, the, the wonderful, most wonderful parts that, for next week is... Uh, the opening of, of chapter 3, it just says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. God is so merciful and so gracious, he gives us chance after chance. And boy, do we need it. There is a limit to that, but incredible. And then we learn the ultimate lesson, that God is in charge. And that's what Jonah really learned through all of this. You know, Despite what Jonah thought would happen, despite what his understanding of the situation was, he had to eventually concede that God is in charge. And believe me, he's a lot better at it than we are. It's a lot better about being in charge and we need to let him take the reins and we need to be obedient. We need to be more like the fish than the prophet, as it were.